Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Jeffrey Deskovic. Jeffrey is an attorney, a TEDx speaker, an exoneree who spent 16 years in prison for a rape and murder he did not commit. And he is the founder of the Deskovic Foundation, which has freed 13 wrongfully convicted people and pursues policy changes aimed at preventing wrongful conviction in the first place. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to jump right in and I'll bring you back to November 17, 1989. That was when the body of a naked female was found in Peekskill. And it turned out to be a 15-year-old classmate of yours who had been raped, beaten, and strangled. And you became a suspect because you were late to school the day after the victim disappeared and you seemed distraught over her death. Do you remember those days? I do. Yeah. What was your experience when you were a suspect? Well, I mean, I was a suspect for the reason you mentioned. And then also I want to add that uh, another reason I became a suspect is because the you know, I didn't quite fit in in the high school and the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them suggested to the police that they might want to talk to me because I didn't fit in. And that's how when doing a little bit of a closer examination of me, the police became aware that I was emotionally distraught. You know, I was a sensitive teenager and this was really my first brush with death. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't think I was that different from anybody else. I mean, this really impacted the, really the whole city of Peekskill emotionally to the point that free mental health services were offered to anyone who wanted it. A reinforcing factor on the police end of it is that they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the uh, psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So it was a type of reinforcing factor. That was basically profiling, but there was evidence, right? No, we know in hindsight that from the, the perpetrator, you know, being ultimately identified and, and, and arrested and convicted with the DNA matching him and him confessing, we know that nothing, nothing about that profile was actually correct. The profile said that it was somebody who knew the victim. The actual perpetrator did not know the victim. It said that it was somebody that, that likely uh, the police had come across. They had never come across him. And they said that it was probably a student. And the actual perpetrator was a 29-year-old. So nothing of it was accurate as to the profile. 
Yeah, so they got it all wrong and they ignored DNA evidence, did they not? They did, but that was a little bit down the line. Sure. Let me get to that because that is a really good point. So other background info that's important in terms of understanding the case is that I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And, you know, that intersected with the police technique of good cop, bad cop, in which they one officer would pretend to be a friend. So I began to look up to him as a as, as a father figure. Uh, prior to being a teenager, I fantasized about becoming a police officer when I grew up. And that intersected with this technique that for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me. Half the time they talked to me as a suspect. And when they pushed too hard and I become a frightened and I want to get away from them, then they switched it up. And Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was what they pushed. Kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. They did that for about six weeks and eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test. They said, we have some new information in the file. We want to share that with you. That's going to allow you to be more helpful. But first you have to take and pass a polygraph. So the next day, rather than report to the high school, I went to the police station because it was a school day. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. But instead of giving me the test at the Peekskill police headquarters, they instead drove me uh, 40 minutes away across county lines to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County, which meant I couldn't leave in, anymore on my own. I was dependent upon the police. You know, they put me in the car with the officer pretending to be my friend just to further build the rapport. The other two cops followed us in a different car. The polygraphist himself was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, uh, Daniel Stevens, but he was dressed like a civilian and he was pretending not to be a cop. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat. He gave me a four-page brochure, which claimed to explain how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. Yeah. So from there, he put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee in order to get me nervous. From there, he attached me to the polygraph and then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He uh, invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you did it. We just want to to verbally confirm it and that really shot my fear to the roof and at that point the officer who was pretending to be my friend he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me but that he'd been holding them off but couldn't do so any longer that I had to help myself then he added if I did as I wanted I could go home I was not going to be arrested so being young naive frightened 16 years old not thinking about the long term just being concerned my safety in the moment I was in fear of my life, the fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew either was looming very large in my mind. There was this threat, there was this false promise. So I decided to make up a story based on the information that he gave me in the course of interrogation, six weeks run up to it. Uh, by the time it was said and done, I collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Um, obviously I was arrested and charged with the murder. The DNA evidence that they ignored that came in where 
after I was arrested, but before the trial, the test result came in and it showed that semen found the victim didn't match me. So what you're describing sounds incredibly manipulative and that must have been against legal procedure. No, you were a minor. You were supposed to have a parent present, no? Well, the only thing was illegal about it was the threat and false promise. So, you know, in, in the U.S., if a person is 16, then you are considered to be an adult for the purpose of speaking with the police without an attorney or a parent being present or them giving permission. Uh, it's not illegal for the police to be deceptive on suspects, even though you are correct, it, that is very coercive. And there is legislation introduced now that would address that, but it's not passed, it's not a law. So it was really just a threat and false promise that was illegal. Um, but an important thing to understand though, is that the interrogation was not videotaped. There was no audio tape. There was no signed confession. It was just the officer's word for it. And as a result, when they came to court and they testified, they left the threat and false promise out of their testimony. And so nobody knew what really happened because there was no video. Yeah. Yes, so, exactly. And it also sounds like it wasn't a fact finding mission. It sounded more like they were convinced you were guilty and they did everything to prove it. I agree with that completely. And to support that idea, I want to say that the polygraphist testified that he carried out this procedure that he said he called the uh, GTC, which stood for get the confession. Hmm. So this was absolutely not a fact-finding mission. It was instead just trying to find a way to arrest me. And to share a few other details to further support that, the police were told by a prosecutor that they didn't have enough evidence to arrest me, that they were supposed to just wait for the DNA test result. But they weren't willing to wait. And that was why they came up with that whole scheme to trick me into agreeing to the polygraph to bring me over to him so he could carry out this procedure. Those are important things to know. And another thing is that when the DNA did not match me, the police went back in the field and they interviewed 17 witnesses who knew the victim one way or another. All of them told the police that she didn't have a boyfriend. There was no consensual sex, but the police did not document any of those interviews. And therefore that was not turned over. Uh, in addition to that, the police fabricated a statement as well. They claimed, I said to them that I didn't know if the perpetrator ejaculated or not, but that word wasn't in my vocabulary as a 16 year old. And that sentence does not appear in any of their written reports about the interrogation, that doesn't appear in their early reports about it. It only appears after the DNA doesn't match me. So they came up with that to help the prosecutor fight the DNA test. And similar, when the DNA didn't match me, the medical examiner got in on the act also. So here's somebody that is supposed to be neutral, is supposed to just be ground level floor science, and he said, once the DNA didn't match me, that's when he came up with the story. He said, well, I, I remember that I forgot to document medical evidence that showed the victim had been sexually active. 
which is what allowed the prosecutor to come up with this consensual sex theory. He even went so far as to mention another youth by name that he claimed that he slept with the victim. But the issue is that in order to make that argument, you're supposed to try to prove that. So he didn't have a DNA test result performed. He didn't call this other person as a witness to give testimony. He just made it up. The medical examiner, come on, you, you don't forget to document something. You're supposed to be making all your documentation as you're going over the body, you know, doing the autopsy. And what's the likelihood six months after this autopsy, hundreds of autopsies later that he remembers this one case in particular where he, he remembers that he forgot to write it down. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like lots of things went wrong. And I have so many questions about that and the trial, because why would somebody do things like this in retrospect say oh I forgot something like what's the purpose of that I think they were just trying to win they were just trying to help the prosecutor get a conviction they all forgot this was supposed to be an objective search for the trial they got away with this consensual sex theory without proving it because the victim's family was not coming to court so they didn't have any idea that they were basically calling her a slut in court. They had no idea that that was being said. My lawyer let them get away with it. You know, he didn't challenge them. So, and his problem was that this other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of Westchester County Legal Aid. And then specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him for a sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness. My lawyer rarely met with me. Every time I tried to explain I was innocent, what happened in interrogation room, he was always shutting me up. He told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He never called my alibi witness. Uh, he, he never explained the jury what the DNA test not matching me meant. He never used that to challenge the confession. Speaking of the confession, sometimes he argued to the jury the confession never happened. Other times he said it happened, but it was coerced. At other times he said it, it, it happened, but it was false. You can't just throw things against the wall. You have to pick a lane and go down it pick one theory, you have to try to disprove, you have to answer that confession, you have to explain it, you have to disprove it, you're supposed to bring it all together in your closing argument, but he didn't do any of that. It sounds like what the jury was presented with must have been very confusing. Yeah, I would agree with that, sure. And so they then convicted you? They did. It's just that there was a little bit, you're right, but there's just a little bit more to it the victim's clothes, including the bra, were put in evidence. The jury asked to see the bra, and that related to one of the statements in the false confession where I said that I ripped her bra off. They asked to see the bra. And that's important because the way that some bras are made, you can't rip it off. So when the jury asked to see that, that's when the judge said that the bra had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the janitors thought it was garbage and they threw it out 
so it wasn't available anymore. Another thing that happened is that because polygraph test results are not reliable, they're not allowed to be admitted in court, but this judge allowed the prosecutor to indirectly get that in. He allowed the polygraphers to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph. He said, well, he's allowed to bring this up because the confession happened connected to the polygraph. So that was prejudicial as well. And the last thing I'll mention is that at the end, it was 11 to one to find me guilty, but there was one holdout juror that did not believe I was guilty. They were all pressuring him to switch his vote. And they then sent a note out on the third day asking the judge, if we don't come up with a verdict, you, you know, because it has to be unanimous, are we going to be kept sequestered, you know, like in a hotel room away from our family, you know, away from media? Are we going to be kept sequestered over the Christmas holiday? And the judge said yes. And so they went back in the, in the room, the pressure intensified and none of them wanted to be there over the Christmas holiday. And so he switched his vote, even though he didn't think I was guilty. All that had the impact of me being found guilty of a murder and rape I didn't commit. And I was given the 15 to life sentence because I had been charged as an adult. So I was sentenced as an adult and I was sent to an adult prison and that happened despite the judge telling me, maybe you are innocent. The judge said that? He did. Oh. And was there anything the judge could, could have done? Yeah, he could have overturned the conviction by reversing any, any number of rulings he made against me in the course of the trial, including the bra being thrown out. So he had a legal route that he could have gotten there had he been willing to do it. Now, hearing all this, you know, and thinking about you knowing you didn't do it. I mean, what was that like that whatever happened, it didn't help you. It just didn't help you. And you ended up convicted and going to prison. Well, it felt like a nightmarish alternative reality because my way of thinking up until that point in time was that only guilty people were found guilty. I just, I remember just feeling stunned and not even, well, wait, did, did, did I hear that right? Did I miss the word not in front of there? So for you, it was like, it must've been like a blur. You didn't know what to do. You went to an adult prison? I did. I was sent to Elmira Correctional Facility. Yeah. It was, um, it was very frightening there. Um, I mean, it was an adult prison. It was the prison walls were large. There was the barbed wire that was menacing and you know, I was in an adult prison. There were fully formed adults, many of whom were guilty of serious violent crimes. So I was frightened as a 17 year old. And, you know, then I, I was always worried that people would discover what I was incarcerated for because there's, you know, vigilante mentality of people convicted of sex offenses. There were three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. There was plenty of violence that did not involve weapons. There was gang activity. So Cumulatively, there was a general atmosphere of violence and adrenaline in the air. And if you were found guilty of breaking a prison rule, they would keep you in the cell 23 hours a day. They, they would send you less food. Sometimes it would be three or four days old. You could take two showers one week and three the next, rather than being able to shower every day as the rest of the population. 
they would give you one hour recreation in a small caged area by yourself with maybe a pull-up bar and if you were lucky you know you could not use the phone while you were on that status you could not buy hygienic items or food items there were several times in the course of my incarceration where i was assaulted one time where i nearly lost my life but beyond dealing with that physicality i was subjected to those sanctions because if you try to defend yourself then that obviously means that you were fighting you know there was a lot of verbal abuse from the guards towards the prisoners and sometimes the, the food would be burned or it would not be it would not be fully cooked you know I, I was put in a prison that was four and a half hours away from home which made it more of a hardship it certainly reduced the frequency of visitation whereas they could have put me in a facility that was closer to home I got the GED and associate's degree while I was there I completed vocational trades but then that silver lining was taken from me because they cut funding for the college education for prisoners so that was taken from me I completed a lot of vocational trades but the curriculum was uh, obsolete so uh, my grandmother died while I was in prison I went to see her in, in the hospital but you know I was in handcuffs and chains it was a humiliating experience you know my brother was impacted by my wrongful imprisonment the kids in the school bus used to tell him that his brother was a rapist and say other nasty things they would try to hit him and stab him with pencils and eventually he dropped out of school you know he ended up turning to drugs and alcohol you know he eventually cleaned himself up but the street mannerisms that he learned while he was running the street still remain he's never went back to school and gotten a GED you know prison was very lonely my mother was my only consistent visitor but the last 5 6 years she you know came maybe once every 6 months i guess the long trip got to her i have sets of aunts and uncles but they would visit and then disappear for 3 years and visit and disappear saw my brother three times in 16 years not not at all in the last decade so in a lot of ways though not literal i essentially did the time by, by myself yeah and your family i mean you say you were impacted of course and your family they must have felt some sort of shame they didn't want to talk about it and you know in addition to that you weren't even guilty how i mean how did you mentally and emotionally survive those years in prison yeah i i would say belief in god was one thing and another thing was i thought that i was just doing a year or two mm-hmm. to the next appeal which i was sure i was going to win because i thought i was you know innocent and, and well i know i was innocent but i believed in the system i used to go to the law library to learn the law and it gave a sense of empowerment of and I, i used to read articles about other people who were exonerated and i would use that as a as a motivation to keep going i found things to throw myself into i mean i read a lot of non-fiction books so from 1998 to 2006 i read three or four non-fiction books a, a week there was another uh, prisoner there named frank sterling who was wrongfully imprisoned also and frank and i used to meet up once every six weeks and we try to keep each other going morale wise and we would try to brainstorm about what the next thing was to do uh frank was eventually exonerated by dna testing also after 18 years a couple of years after me so it wasn't just that i thought he was innocent but he actually was yeah and but i placed the ad in the newspaper so only i was i placed the ad in the, in the newspaper and 
actually in Sacramento, it's a city in California, and somebody looking for a pen pal and hoping that that person could help me to connect me to legal services that I read it happened. So uh, I placed that ad with maybe two years left and he, he answered my ad. And I was openly asking this stranger that I didn't know from anywhere, you think I should just quit? Should I just go ahead and kill myself and be done? You know, so that just rounds out the, rounds out the picture of it. But the other thing I'll mention is the mind can create creative ways to try to survive and keep going mentally. You know, in my case, I used to pretend when I would play chess or basketball or ping pong, like if I was a professional player and so was everyone else there. But it was not like kids having fun on the playground. This was I needed to try to, you know, just get out of the prison for a couple of hours. So that was part of it. Uh, I used to listen to sports talk radio, but it wasn't sports talk radio. To me, that was a lifeline to the outside. And in that context, even, even when I got a piece of junk mail, that had some kind of meaning to me because when the officer would walk around and give out the mail, I mean, he would pass by the cell and not stop. I mean, that hurt. Yeah. So you were able to create this reality for yourself that kept you somewhat sane because you yes. also said you, you were innocent and you thought, okay, the next appeal is going to change that you're going to be in prison. But I guess it didn't because you spent what, 16 years inside? That's exactly right. So I lost seven appeals and that took me through 11 years. And at that point, once your appeals are over, the only way back in court is if you can find some new evidence or if there's a change in the law. So I didn't have money to hire an investigator or an attorney to find the evidence. So uh, I wrote letters for four years looking for help from anyone that could help me directly or indirectly. Then I looked at the parole board as a potential way of regaining my freedom. And uh, I got denied parole as well you know, largely because I maintained my innocence rather than accepting remorse and taking responsibility. Ultimately, I was exonerated after 16 years. Actually, through one of the letters I wrote to a, a book author in care of the publishing company, but somebody at the company sent the letter to Claudia Whitman, who's an investigator. And, and when I showed her the DNA test results, she believed in my innocence. Ultimately, one of her ideas worked. She told me, write the Innocence Project, she lobbied them also and got other people to urge them to take my case as well. And I got lucky also that one of the workers there, uh, Maggie Taylor, she presented my case uh, a total of three times to the lawyers. The first two times the lawyers said no, and she kept coming up with new ideas because she was convinced I was innocent because the DNA didn't match me. So they agreed to take my case, and that was the first key. Second key was that the district attorney uh, Janine Pirro, who, who blocked DNA testing and fought the appeal, she left office. So her success was less dug in. And the third thing was that we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the DNA data bank. So the data bank had been created. And so we went from being able to say that it didn't match me to then being able to say scientifically who it did match. You know, so based on that, uh, September 22nd, 2006, the conviction was overturned and I was released. I reported back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And, you know, and the actual perpetrator 
shortly after that was arrested and convicted of the crime. That's really what changed it, right? If we, he wouldn't have done that, it would never, they would have still not believed you and you would have been out of anything to show. That's right. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, that's another point in, in, in all of this, which is that, you know, as a result of what, you know, the police, the court, the prosecutor, even my own lawyer, that that storm that happened, which ended in my wrongful imprisonment, that left the actual perpetrator free to strike again. And he killed a second victim three and a half years later, who was a school teacher in Peekskill and who had two children. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm also thinking you said there was another person with you in prison who was innocent and you were helped by an organization called the Innocence Project. So what that tells us is that this is not a singular case, that this happened to other people. And it sounds like it takes people many years to prove that they are really innocent. I agree with both of those points. So the per the National Registry of Exonerations, which catalogs uh, all the exonerations in the United States from 1989 forward, uh, there have been close to 3,000 people who have been exonerated. And the average length of wrongful imprisonment, at least in the DNA cases, is uh, 14 years. So you're right, it does take a very long time. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to prove you didn't do something. And there's not enough organizations or individuals doing this work. There's really long waiting lines. And then can you find something new? And then is the prosecution going to, if you have objective evidence, are they going to objectively consider that and, and agree to exoneration where that's what the facts call for? Or are they just going to fight and litigate, which can drag the process out? Yeah. So, you know, there are so many things that have to fall into place. Money is definitely an issue, right? Because when you're in prison, yes. you can't afford a lawyer. So you need to wait for an organization that helps you for free. And many people wait for that. And I guess, you know, when you say there is a, there's a law that says you have to come up with new evidence. So if you're lucky enough, you have something, they could still say, I don't want to look at it. They could say, I still don't want to look at it. That they being the, you know, the, the district attorney, and then, of course, you go to the court and you, you can litigate there. You might win. But part of the problem in all of this as well is the judges. You know, are they going to objectively consider something or are they just going to rubber stamp deny it? There is a reluctance on the part of judges to overturn wrongful convictions. I mean, they're thinking about, well, if I reverse the case, look at all this time and money and effort that already went into it that I'm overdoing. You know, there's that aspect of it also. I mean, whether the judge is going to be objective or not, often it turns out to be just as important as what the facts or law is that you, you have on your side as a wrongfully convicted prisoner. So, And you mentioned that, so your organization, the Deskovic Foundation, it sounds like that is a result of you having this experience and then when you came out of prison, did you then study law? Did you do that inside? Both. Okay. I did it inside. Um, but also when I did come home, I got scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree because that was a human interest item that I was 10 classes short of the bachelor's when the funding was cut. That was a human interest item included in the stories about me being released. 
Dean Alkin at Mercy College decided to line a scholarship up for me at the school. And then she approached me and asked me if I wanted to finish. So I, I would not have gone to school on my own. I foolishly was thinking I was too old at that point that college, that ship passed that I wanted to go to college a long time ago. But I got the scholarship from them to finish the bachelor's degree and I made good on that. And, you know, I did graduate and I wound up getting master's degree from John Jay College. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction causes and reform because when I was released, I gave a really big presentation to the media and everything I ever wanted to say in 16 years can never get anyone to hear all came out. And so that launched an advocacy career of speaking and writing and meeting with elected officials and keeping the media going. And I just figured that getting the master's degree, the extra credential would help me in my advocacy career. Then after five years, I was financially compensated and I wanted to go to the next level of trying to free people. And so I used some of the money I used a million and a half dollars from that to start the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. And we have the results that I mentioned. And at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and make some of the arguments represent some of the clients, hence going to law school and graduating a Pace Law School and you know being an attorney in pursuit of the dream of exonerating others as a lawyer. And you mentioned also that the Deskovic Foundation isn't just helping people who are innocent to get out of prison, but you're also thinking about there have to be policy changes, right? Because why is this happening to so many people and why is it taking so long? Yeah, yes, exactly right. So as great as it was to be exonerated, uh, I would have preferred not to have gone through everything. Hence the philosophy of doing policy changes. So we were able to pass three laws, so videotaping, interrogation, uh, better procedures for identification, DNA data bank expansion. Uh, I am an advisory board member of the coalition group, It Could Happen to You, which the foundation is part of. And so we helped to pass an additional six laws, you know, working within that coalition, including independent oversight for prosecutors and better system of automatically turning evidence over by both sides. We do policy work now in New York and in Pennsylvania and also in California. Yeah, so those are some great successes. How easy or difficult was it to push for that? Well, it's never easy. Having said that, look, we were part of passing six laws as part of the coalition group rather than the three as individuals before the coalition group was founded. So we do our policy exclusively through that you know, coalition and actually the coalition's founder, beyond my being an advisory board member and already working closely with them, uh, Bill Bastic, he also works part-time for the foundation doing policy. So we do everything streamlined. So it's easier now doing it in coalition. I mean, it's still hard, but, you know, once you build coalition, you know, you, you use the same coalition for all the stuff. And so after we passed that commission on prosecutor conduct, we, you know, we were able to help get other laws passed in New York and, you know, one in Pennsylvania now. And so we kind of have the blueprint of success, you know, having a statewide coalition, even with non-traditional partners like teachers unions and, you know, hotel and restaurant industry and uh, late labor, because all their members could potentially be impacted by the justice system. And so when you have many groups working together, it's harder for them to ignore 
it's easier in coalition also because you divide the work. For example, in the key moments in the campaign to pass the oversight for the prosecutors, there were a couple of key press conferences that you know I couldn't attend because I had finals in law school. And but I'm the liaison to the exoneree community. That's one of the roles that I played. And so I, I just called some of the other exonerees and said, "Look, you know." I need you to step up for me. Usually you're standing there with me. I started off at the press conference. You guys chime in, but I can't be there for this one. I need you to step into my role and I got to pass this final. I got to get this law degree. Yeah. And also I think people knew about this problem that people are innocent in prison for so long for some time, but it wasn't talked about as much. I think it's talked about more. And, you know, I'm also wondering, because so you seem to be, I don't want to use the word success, Joy, because it's like, you know, like it's not a success to be innocent in person and come out. But what you're doing now, you seem to be, you know, your mental health seems good. Your physical health seems good. You have a purpose. You you got some money. But is this a typical story? It is not a typical story. No, I'm definitely an outlier. You know, it, it really breaks a lot of people. I know many people are still in, never made it out. Some of the ones that made it out simply want to put it behind them. Some of the other people that don't want to put it behind them, you know, they do a little bit of advocacy here and there, like they speak here and there, they'll do an interview here or there, or maybe they'll meet with the elected officials here and there. But, you know, I'm sleeping and breathing this like 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, even holidays, you know, and most of them haven't become lawyers or doing this in a professionalized um, way. So I'm definitely, you know, an outlier in that. But part of the rationale for that is I feel very fortunate that I've had educational opportunities a lot of other people haven't had. So, you know, I feel a strong moral responsibility to be engaged, you know, in this work. And you're right, I do have this mission and purpose in life. And so and I, I know why I'm in the world. I have an inner sense of peace. I have acceptance. And kind of closely tied into that. I mean, I'm not an angry or bitter person because I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. And I don't think I can do that from angry or bitter. You know, I've lost so much already. Why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? And, you know, the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take that energy that I would feel and I channel it into the advocacy work. Yeah. And you mentioned also education and so you were really young you probably didn't finish high school yet but you right. had a chance to do that in prison and were you only in one prison or did you move to different prisons i moved to different prisons i started out in elmira correctional facility but i also uh, i spent a little bit of time in eastern correctional facility and then i went back to elmira so i was in elmira from 1991 to 95 then i went to Eastern Correctional Facility. I was there for three weeks and then I got transferred back to Elmira for 10 months. Then I got transferred to Shawangong Correctional Facility. I was there for a year and a half. And then I got transferred back to Elmira for a decade. And then my last 28 days was spent in Sing Sing where I went from Sing Sing to the court and from the court to home. And what would you say were the opportunities to get education were they the same in all the prisons were there services available no matter where you went there were generally yes because i think that probably depends also i've heard people say that some 
prisons have more services and there are more educational yeah. programs? Yeah, okay. So for example, so Eastern and Sing Sing were the only prisons in New York State where before the funding was cut, they had master's degree programs. Some facilities have a therapeutic programs that, that others don't. But I mean, that that's just a few examples, but overall, uh, I think that most of the programs are available in all of the prisons. Yeah, because I would imagine if somebody goes into prison and, you know, didn't have much education before and doesn't have access to much education during, what happens to them when they come out? Because even if you, so I guess when you're innocent, you get exonerated, but when you did commit a crime, you don't. And there is a stigma for the rest of your life almost, right? Yes, there is. I know a lot of people on parole, people that I've met on the street, or even some people on parole that I knew while we were both uh, prisoners. And, you know, they do describe being discriminated against in terms of employment, that they often have really great interviews. And then suddenly when their record is discovered, then, you know, either in the interview or, or in the follow-up, you know, the whole environment changes. You know, I, mean, I feel strongly that college education should be returned back to prisons because, you know, it, there's a very low recidivism rate for college educated prisoners. And it really kind of makes sense because if you equip people with the skills they need to expand their horizons and just the further education, you know, they're in position then to receive gainful employment. If they don't and they're released back to society with no skills at all, plus the record, you know, we're kind of setting them up to fail. And I think that applies as well. When we talk about job discrimination, at some point, the temptation to return back to crime or return back to the old ways, it, it intensifies. How is it? I mean, you know, people, the ones that you help, so you know them from being inside and coming outside. So they were innocent. How does the community that they're going back to, or how does the community where they want to work react to that because yes they were innocent but they still happen in prison is it really erased no not really i mean in that aspect of it i still experienced the stigma when i was in prison wrongfully yes but i was still there so how much of that rubbed off on me is it safe to be alone someplace with me so i have had that stigma impact me in terms of uh, you know social relationships but then also even when i was looking for jobs I had one business owner said, you know, I'm kind of concerned that I don't want to have people protesting in front of my business, so I can't hire you. Another person said to me, and these are just examples, well, I don't know how my other workers are going to react, but I can run the business without you, but I can't run it without them. Maybe another minor factor is that I found that potential employers, they all wanted somebody who could hit the ground running rather than being a little patient, give a little bit of on-the-job training, you know, and they always say it's easier to go from job to job rather than no job to job. But in terms of you commenting about the mental health and being put together, you know, you're kind of looking at an end result, though. You know, I want to share that for six years, I went to see mental health professionals four times a week in order to deal with the over overcoming the psychological after effects of my experience, in, in, even in getting used to, you know, activities of uh, daily living. That was not an easy thing. The world was different when I was released, uh, certainly culturally, definitely technologically. 
uh, cell phones, internet, GPS hadn't been created. Cities and towns looked different. So overall, it felt like I was in a parallel world that I didn't uh, belong in. I found that my extended family had, had really become strangers to me. So it was awkward when I would meet up with them. I mean, I knew who they were from memories when I was young, but you know, I was a different person now and so were they. So that was an additional challenge. Yeah, because even if you get some visits, it's not the same as growing up with a family. You don't form those same close connections, right? Yes, exactly right. And, you know, it's almost like if you're innocent or guilty, the adjustment is huge after you have spent, you know, years. Like, I think 10 plus years in prison must be a huge difference, right? And it's uh -huh. not only the world looks different, but you make decisions outside of prison that you don't get to make inside, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's true. So when I was initially released, I mean, just the fact of having to go and get my own mail rather than it being brought to me and, you know, junk mail used to rattle me like, what well, you know, why are they contacted me with this? I don't want to waste my time doing this or getting, you know, the recurring monthly bills for different services like cell phones. I remember that when I would go shopping, that was a, it was too much noise. Like what I mean by that is uh, metaphorical. So there were so many different companies that made competing products and all at different price points and different quantities. I mean, sometimes I just pushed the wagon away from me and just said, I, 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 I'm coming back. I can't, I can't right now. It was too much. So there was definitely an overstimulation. There are, as you correctly point out, there are a very limited number of decisions you make while you're in prison versus uh, out here. I think that I had a particularly difficult time because of the fact that I was in prison from age 17 to 32, rather than say, if I went in at 30 and came back out at 46, I never lived on my own. I had never gone shopping. I had to get a driver's license for the first time. I never had to write a check or balance a budget. Yeah, you had to learn to be an adult in addition to getting used to a new environment. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, you know, I don't know, I think, you know, people who are, who had been guilty of something and are released, they go through parole. And I think parole is supposed to be giving some help. We could question how much that is valid and what needs to change there. But if you are innocent and exonerated, is there a system that helps you adjust? There is not. No, that's an important distinction. There is nobody. There is nobody. And and, and then I want to add, but beyond that, even amongst the uh, nonprofit organization, the NGOs, there are a lot of organizations that um, they do prisoner reentry. But that's for people on parole or probation, not for people who are exonerated. So I went to a number of those reentry organizations and they were not willing to help me because I was exonerated. You know, they said, well, we can't reference you to our funders. My argument was, well, so what? You got the money in the door, your salaries are paid, the lights are on. So what if you can't cite me? Does I have the same needs as other people? Just help me in the same way you help them. Yeah. But I was not, I was not able to break through in that way. So now as you have the Deskovic Foundation, you're looking at the law and you're looking at, you know, finding evidence and helping people to get freed. What is it you are looking forward to creating in the next few years? And is there 
are you working together with other organizations that help people readjust again? We are looking to expand our capacity. So we are actively pursuing additional funding, which would allow us to expand. We are working on 10 active cases, but we have another seven that are approved, but waiting. We don't have the capacity to move them. Uh, so if we get additional funding, uh, we would be able to uh, expand that. And we would like to be able to do policy work in a few more states than just New York, Pennsylvania, and California. And we would like to pursue some legislation federally. Again, the oversight for prosecutors, which would impact the federal cases. So those are some of our immediate future short-term goals. Uh, Long-term, I have the dream of uh, maybe having a, a chapter in each state and ultimately in each country, because I really see this as being a worldwide issue, not simply a U.S. problem, but we're always looking for celebrity spokespeople and large donors, small donors, medium donors. We do have the website called Patreon. You read about political campaigns and, you know, candidates from both parties are able to raise tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, largely from small donor uh, donations. So we do have the crowdfunding page on Patreon. And, you know, what if 25,000 people, what if 100,000 people were willing to donate $3 or but on a recurring basis? So that really would allow us to expand our capacity to take more cases and pursue, you know, additional laws. Somewhere along the line, I'd love to have a book deal and have a movie deal. And I think to some extent, as goes I, as goes my organization, and to some extent, as goes the issue, there is a documentary short out on Netflix called Conviction, which is 20 minutes and it's uh, won three awards and been accepted to 14 different documentary film festivals. And it's about my life post-exoneration and the advocacy work. So within the next year, we are hoping to have a uh, hour and a half full feature of that documentary. But I want to quickly mention a few other entities, the Global Advisory Council for Restorative Justice International. And when I advise them on wrongful conviction issues and criminal justice issues, I do believe, you know, a model that's not strictly punitive, but also healing that's really lacking. There is a new bar association that's going to launch soon called the National Justice Impacted Bar Association. So I'm a board member there, and that seeks to facilitate the path into the legal field and ultimately to law school and ultimately practicing as lawyers for people who have been formerly incarcerated. I have done some volunteer work with uh, RAP, release aging people in prison and towards parole reform, because I did see a lot of prisoners there who, in my opinion, were rehabilitated, who could have been safely returned back to society, but they were constantly denied parole over and over again, all in the name of what the original offense was that they were incarcerated. You know, no one's suggesting they get away with it, but you know, at some point, enough is enough. If someone does 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years, and then they go into the parole board and they're being denied over and over again. I mean, as a society, what are we saying? Are we saying that we don't believe in a second chance anymore, that we don't believe in rehabilitation anymore? I mean, that's such a demoralizing impact on our prisoners. And we do see, I have known a lot of people. I do know a lot of people that were guilty, that did their time. And now that they're home, they're making positive contributions to society, whether that's working as teachers, working in nonprofit organizations, dealing with um, prisoner reentry. Some are doing other justice reform work, still others working with at-risk youth, trying to divert them from a path that ultimately leads into incarceration. Some work with homeless populations. So I think as a society, when 
parole worthy candidates are turned down for parole beyond it impacting them and their family, I think we lose also because those contributions are not being made. And as a taxpayer, I would rather have somebody paying into the tax base rather than being a drain on tax resources in terms of you know the money that is paid to incarcerate them. In conviction, I spent a little bit of the platform time that I was given just to talk about a lot of disturbing things that I saw up close and personal that either impacted me or that I saw impacted other people. You know, just how ineffective, uncaring, and cold the system was when it came to terminally ill prisoners and how often by the time a decision was made whether they were going to be released early to die with some dignity with their friends and family in a normal environment. How by the time that was decided, sometimes they already passed away. Sometimes they had one or two days left. Uh, the extreme amount of prisoner on prisoner violence, which the prison staff never seemed to me to have much of an interest in trying to prevent to the verbal abuse from the guards towards the prisoners. So I kind of railed against a lot of that and how even the vocational trades that are offered the curriculum often was obsolete. I feel strongly that prison should be where somebody is sent to as punishment rather than being sent there for punishment. You know, the terrible medical care and how I suffered from that. I can't straighten my finger because I got injured when I was playing basketball. And by the time I got to see the doctor a couple of months passed, and then it was kind of in place now. And then the doctor said, I'm not authorizing any forms for the state to spend money to bring you to an outside doctor to fix this. You still can move your pinky a little bit. So just using that as an example and, and how while that is bottom of the barrel of medical attention and indifferent and depraved, how the medical care in prison was particularly not capable of dealing with advanced medical needs of elderly people. So I raise awareness about that issue. I mean, I, I can't spearhead that, but I can lend my voice and my name, you know, to further those things. You know, I do that. I'm really grateful that you do this, that you don't just say, well, you know, I'm done with this, but I want to bring awareness to this and I want to help because I think the more people do that, the more effective it is. Like you said, we have coalitions, right? There is more power. And also all these examples you mentioned about treatment of prisoners, criminals, we are dealing with human beings. We have to not forget that, right? So like you said, are we punishing people or are we saying we don't agree with what you did? You need to rethink that. We're going to help you see it differently. We're going to help you rehabilitate yourself. Or do we not care and just put people in a prison? They will come back out. They will live with us in society. What kind of society do we want to have, right? And if we mm -hmm. can't see human beings, then we definitely are in trouble. Yeah, 100%. And in that aspect, I think that, you know, in the US, we have a lot to learn from Europe. I mean, they're much further ahead of us when it comes to their prison system and their approach to crime. Jeff, I'm really grateful for you for speaking with me today and telling your story and being so open about it. And I do wish you all the best that you get to do these things that you want to do. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on and the interview and, you know, sharing my story. And if I can give a general word of encouragement to people, have a goal, have a realistic plan, be flexible. Don't accept excuses. There might be reasons why something is harder, but no reasons why you can't accomplish something. Work really hard and then 
you never give up. Thank you very much for these really wise and encouraging words. Thank you very much. If you liked this episode, please tell your friends and family, write a review and give us some stars. <laughs>